Hey y'all, so on this 420 edition of the Triloquy Podcast, Scott and I spent a little time exploring the intersection of classical music and a little plant you might know as cannabis. And as we continue to fight through this global pandemic, we're learning more and more every day. Recent studies have shown that smoking cannabis may indeed make you more susceptible to symptoms associated with COVID-19. Now, we're not walking back anything we may or may not affirm in this opus, but we thought we might share this little bit of information with you as we fight against the coronavirus together. And I also want to say that this interview was not done under the influence of any substances. The listening of it will be, at least on my end. <laughs> Let's get started. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. Scott, the 420 opus of Triloquy. How do you <laughs> how do you feel about tying in cannabis with classical music? Is that something you're comfortable with? Uh, I think that people are going to find out through the conversation that's coming up is that it's a lot more prevalent than you want to think. Probably so. Um, the, the guest that uh, we have on this Opus of Triloquy is John Del Vento. He's a music educator turned composer from the East Coast. He predominantly writes um, for TV, but he has some really strong opinions about the way we treat um, music education, the way we siphon off certain cultures within music education. And he even, um, in the conversation, goes, into, um, you know, how cannabis is a part of his life and how normalizing that within music um, can can be a really good thing about normalizing it um, across the board. So I was really happy that he was um, open and honest about, you know, about his relationship with that drug. Well, sure. But I also have to ask, though, you you've mentioned a number of times about how you've used beta blockers. Well, uh, I well I have not used beta blockers. Okay, but, so you but, talked about beta right, blockers. Right, they're very common within classical music. Okay, so is that not then a performance-enhancing drug in itself? I think that beta blockers are a performance-enhancing drug, and I, I don't necessarily judge anyone who uses them, I guess, but I, I, it's kind of a hard conversation for me because, you know, in sports, um, performance-enhancing drugs are, are illegal for all intents and purposes, right? right. And, and that's not really something that we apply to class classical music, but it's sort of a different thing. So folks who have never heard of beta blockers, it's basically this pill that you take that makes you unnervous, like whatever whatever betas in your body, you know, manifest with dry mouth or sweaty palms or shaky hands or, or whatever, it's supposed to take those away. And a lot of people live, uh, live and die by those. And I, mm. I, I don't, I don't know if I would feel comfortable using anything like that because it's those nerves that really add the edge, really add the spice to, to when I perform, you know? Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. Whenever I was about to do a show, um, those nerves is what got you going and got right. you started, you know, hook the audience first with energy. And then as the performance goes on, then you loosen up, you quit sweating and you're in it, you yeah. know? 
Yeah. And then, of course, as, you know, uh, cannabis legislation changes across the country, so does its uh, relationship with classical music. You know, everyone thinks about Colorado when you think of legal weed. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember years ago um, for their outdoor concerts, they were encouraging people to come with their marijuana to come listen to these uh, concerts and classical concerts. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and people may consider that sort of a fringe uh, sort of thing, some out there sort of thing. But, you know, there there is a relationship not with just cannabis and classical music historically, but drugs and classical music. Probably, I've probably uh, mentioned it on uh, on the podcast before, but um, uh, when at my former station down in Knoxville, you know, every 420, I, I themed all of my shows, but uh, 420 definitely got its own themed show. And there are some specific there are specific pieces of music that you can um, attach to that. One is by a composer named Sergei Lyapunov. Um, he he doesn't have a very common name, um, but he wrote what he called called um, an oriental fantasy, quote unquote. Now that that O word is, is mm-hmm. one we don't really use these days, but he was talking, you know, when you see that word in classical music, especially by the Russian composers, they were talking more about the Middle East. So right. his, his sort of Middle Eastern fantasy um, was nicknamed the Hashish Symphony. And, um, and, and you can sort of hear that sort of stereotypical you know, uh, curtains and veils and and incense and and cannabis sounds uh, in, in the music. Yeah. Now, of course, the most famous example is um, Hector Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. So, of what do you course. know about that? <laughs> lots of opium. I mean, he lots was, of opium. He was straight up tripping. He was tripping balls. And and this isn't the LSD episode, so I'm not going to get into that and, and my experience therein. But uh, you know, you have to be you know tripping a bit to to write a piece of music. Um, about you know th- there there's an excerpt of of the symphony the symphony fantastique where he musically depicts a guy yelling out his final cries before this guillotine comes and chops his head off and there's even little uh, blips and and uh, uh, pits pizzicatos in the strings that depict the uh, rolling of his head before that final uh, fanfare. <laughs> now, um, before we get into the conversation uh, with John, I wanted to go all the way back um, to Hildegard von Bingen. So last month was, um, you know, Women's History Month, and we talked a lot about uh, women composers. And Hildegard von Bingen is a composer who um, many consider classical music's very first woman. You know, she uh, lived during the 12th century, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a lot of holy music. And if you read about her, um, there's a phrase connected to her. It says that she loved to uh, enjoy various herbs. And, uh, you know, what do I have to say to that? But alleluia. So 
So um, happy 420, everyone, to uh, folks who celebrate. If you don't celebrate, happy 420 to you as well. Um, I think in the in the coming years, we'll see uh, cannabis normalized more, not only in classical music, but um, across the board. Um, so one of the first things we get into with today's guest, John Del Vento, is his low brass playing, his uh, euphonium playing, and how that's not an instrument that you see on the orchestral stage. It's an instrument that many people don't necessarily respect um, all that much, but um, as you'll hear John talk about, um, is it was really the conduit um, to what has turned out to be a very unique and very uh, lucrative career for him. And there's and there's even a lot of um, really important euphonium music, as as you'll hear in the conversation over in the brass band tradition um, in in England. And um, there's a piece of music by uh, Hugo Schmidt. In, um, in that category called The Devil's Tongue. Since we're talking about The Devil's Herb a little bit today, mm. I thought it might be cool for us to uh, sample a little tune called The Devil's Tongue as we uh, transition into our conversation with John Del Vento. John, a pleasure to have you on Triloquy. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Hey, how's it going, Garrett? Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on. And, um, you know, we've been chatting on Twitter for a while, so we finally made this happen, and I'm very excited to be here. Again, thanks for uh, getting out of your normal kind of a red-eye schedule and seeing me here in the, uh, you know, afternoon. That's pretty nice of you. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, you, you talk about things that are normal or traditional, and, and so much of your career falls outside of that. You know, you're a euphonium player, you write uh, music for TV, and I imagine that, you know, the uh, the untypical nature of both of those worlds has, has played a, a really big role in your life. Yeah, it's definitely um, untypical or atypical. That's one way to say it. Um, I don't know if that created a deeper, um, you know, feeling of being unique for me. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I started with the euphonium, just kind of in the normal kind of U.S. public school system, playing my instrument, and it all just kind of went from there till here. I've never really stopped doing music. I'm really lucky to you know be doing it now full time but yeah that's where it started with the euphonium and i've i've always kind of been i guess a little bit of a rebel you know always kind of doing my own thing so you know maybe it was the old euphonium that kind of started that who knows what was the euphonium an instrument surely that's not an instrument you chose but i would imagine one just sort of assigned to you whenever you joined the band at whatever age well sort of like i started on the trumpet a lot of kids do and then I got braces so you know if you have a you know most band teachers they're like no you can't quit band so just play a bigger instrument so he just kind of gave me the euphonium and I brought it home and my mom was like what the hell is this thing but she just kind of went with it and I went with it and you know I was always a little competitive so you know I started doing competitions and stuff and yeah it was kind of forced on me but you know I used it to my advantage and you know it was only the only thing I was kind of you know really good at so you know, I just pursued it, and one thing led to the other. Um, I, I, have, you know, I, I don't play as much now as, as I used to, but, you know, it's always a part of my life and a very important part of my life, and part of my life I don't really get to talk too much about, to be honest. And everybody's talking, you know, wants to talk about my 
know, composing career and stuff. But the euphonium is really where it all started. And in terms of years, I spent really spent more time as a kind of slave to the euphonium than I have been as a composer in my current state. I, I mean, kind of funny. I, I know that there are lots of um, opportunities to play the euphonium in, in wind ensemble and that sort of thing. But do you get much stage time uh, with orchestras as a euphonium player? No, and we, you know we kind of know that going into it. So when I went to conservatory, I double majored in performance, but I also majored in music ed. So you know I had a strong music ed education. So I I never worried about kind of not having a job, you know. But if a you know there are degrees in euphonium performance and like saxophone performance, and that's like that's tough because as you say, you know it's not an orchestral instrument. So you know in and of itself it the you know professional opportunities are pretty limited i mean basically for a professional euphonium player you're looking at military bands right. or maybe a little chamber group if you're lucky or you know a handful of soloists but it's not something i really went into to be a good performer um you know it always happened but i, I really studied you know music ed and you know a little bit of performance and in college i just kind of really gotten into production and composition but um you know i never really expected to have great opportunities in euphonium but you know i did go for a few military band auditions you know kind of the cream of the crop spots i didn't get anything but um you know that's just a good kind of place to be in in your 20s able to take those kind of auditions and stuff so it taught me many things but unfortunately the opportunities are limited for euphonium you know i did have to learn a little bit of trombone but you know, never enough to get those top-notch orchestral chops, you know, because that's, that's hard. <laughs> John, did you ever see the film Brassed Off? Yeah, the brass band film, yeah. Yeah, so why, <laughs> why? So for those who haven't seen it, it's a film about um, some coal miners in England, and the community band is basically what's keeping everybody alive. You know, that's what everybody wants. To, they're, they're going to work in the coal mine to get to the point where they get to play music with each other. Like you said, it's very competitive. Why do you think that the brass sound is so much popu- more popular in Britain than here in the States? Yeah, I think the brass band tradition in and of, of itself is very different um, in Britain versus over here. You know, in fact, in Britain, the euphonium is a very you know, respected and widely known instrument because mm. of the brass band tradition. I think because of those minors, it really came down to cost. It came down to the ability of the musicians to play all the different instruments because it's much easier for a brass player to switch between instruments than it is for, you know, say a woodwind player. So a lot of those brass band guys, they're just amateurs. So, you know, the, the, you know, the boss of the factory just had to spend, you know, maybe 10,000 bucks on some crappy instruments. Mm-hmm. You know, you got yourself a band that'll last you 20, 30 years and entertain your workers so they don't, you know, quit on you. So that's right. really what that kind of factory tradition was. It's a very strange history, but then it kind of became its own art form where those brass bands are just so virtuosic. You know, most of them are amateur groups, and it really is a very interesting piece of culture, but it came out of that factory tradition where I think brass instruments just presented a cost-efficient and, you know, a way to achieve a pretty decent sound with very little practice, you know. Yeah. Your, your first-year trumpet player is, you know, playing hot cross buns after his first lesson, so a few <laughs> lessons you can start playing songs. Woodwinds, I think, takes... A little bit more work, and then strings. You're not going to have factory, you know, British factory working class people playing strings. I don't think so. I think brass just kind of stuck, and like I said, you know, the trumpet player could play tuba, they could play trombone, they could kind of switch around and mm. you know make a little band for the town, and that was that. It's a pretty nice tradition. Brass off is a very great film that captures that 
kind of working class nature of it. You know, they've closed the factory and, and you know, they basically saved the band. The factory closes, but a lot of these bands in England are, you know, named after the factories, but the factories are gone, but the bands are still there and they're right. thriving. It's pretty unique. And, you know, when you talk about that that fast start, you know, getting to a, a sound, a recognizable sound out of that instrument um, in, in a relatively short amount of time, uh, you know, so so like you, I also um, started out as a music education major, so I'm sure you took um, the methods courses where you had to learn to play and teach the different <laughs> instruments, right? So in my brass methods, you know, that tr- the, I hold the opinion that the trumpet is the most difficult instrument to play in the world. I mean, I just could really? not make that that trumpet sound right but once they gave me a euphonium and I could use the trumpet fingerings oh I felt like I was ready for anything on that <laughs> there's definitely something to <laughs> that quick great. start yeah that, that's funny you know I think trumpet is just you know the smaller so this just being a smaller mouthpiece is right tough. but no brass in itself is really just pucker your lips and blow you know and the, and they make you spend four years in conservatory how to you know perfect a buzz and a blow it's just kind of funny but, you know, I think every instrument has its innate challenge, but I got a little disenfranchised just, like I said, kind of studying one instrument for four years. And, you know, I, I really started to expand my horizons in those college years. But, you know, prior to college, it really was just the one instrument, which I think is pretty probably important in your formative years. But once you get to a certain point, I think you really got to start expanding and, you know, learning different instruments and, you know, trying to apply these things that you've learned for years and almost decades at this point. But so many people are just so comfortable with staying on one instrument and, you know, power to them for their whole life. But uh, for me, that's, you know, that's just not um, something I was into. And especially for the euphonium with opportunities being so limited, um, you know, I was, you know, very, it was very easy for me to expand into other avenues. But yeah, I love the euphonium, man. It's easy to play. You know, it's a nice warm tone. You know, you kind of hug it when you play it. You get yeah. a nice little hug. And, yeah. <laughs> you you know, I, I could bash trumpet players for an hour. If you want to go that, no let's, problem. Yes, no. <laughs> uh, no you, you made connections. You know, you, you spoke to the connections between, you know, working class um, culture and brass band culture in um, over across the pond uh, in England. I'm wondering um, if you could uh, speak at all to that um, in your experience here. Talk, talk, talk to us a little bit about... Um, your upbringing and 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 if you are you know a, a legacy musician or if your parents um, you know put, you know thought of your being in the band as something different or, or what 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 was that like for you? Yeah, I definitely had a um, a working class upbringing. You know, for me, I, I grew up in the you know northeast part of the United States where there's a lot of these urban centers and a lot of these you know little side neighborhoods. I grew up in a an old Italian immigrant neighborhood and you know during you know the time I was in elementary school you know in the late 80s and 90s and stuff you know a lot of you know different immigrant groups came over so my neighborhood was just very diverse and a lot of different foods and a lot of different musics and things like that so you know by the time I was studying instruments I was just really involved in this very awesome 90s um, culture that I really yearn back to where um, you know the immigrant experience was very appreciative and, and, you know, very, very respected and very kind of ingrained in the public school system. So, you know, my working class background, I think, is is very important to my work ethic, my kind of um, journey to build a career for myself, you know, seeing the people around me and my parents, you know, work the kind of jobs they were working and 
being able to at least get me that $300 trumpet and kind of work my ass off and, you know, being home alone with nothing else to do besides my instrument and not being able to afford video games. These are things that were part of my background that I think really helped shape me, um, things I don't get to talk about a lot. So I appreciate you bringing that up because um, I, I try to be a very uh, inclusive person. I try to learn about all different type, types of music and styles of music. And that really started in my upbringing. Just my neighborhood was awesome. <laughs> we would go have adobo chicken one day and then have like tikka masala the other day made by like the grandmas straight off the boat, like mm -hmm, the best right food. On. In the summer, you had all sorts of Cuban music over here, Dominican music over here, and, you know, the old Italian lady doing olive oil and garlic. It was just, I grew up in this great factory town that had these, um, you know, this real feeling of unity, and that's a real thing in the Northeast. And part of that is, you know, hip-hop as well, so hip-hop was always a big part of my life. So, you know, music's always been there for me. Um, obviously, in the kind of formal education structure, I had to really kind of focus on classical and you know, not even so much jazz, but my upbringing just had so much amazing ethnic food and ethnic culture, and it was a very working class background. Um, so I think that's another reason why I played the trumpet because my mom couldn't afford the clarinet or the flute sure. or anything like that. You can get the trumpet for a couple hundred bucks from you know fourth grade to twelfth grade. You're set. What what do you have to say between the disconnect between this very multicultural environment you were in and the very limited um, resources when it came to music education because, you know, I'm sure you weren't learning about those Middle Eastern or those East Asian traditions in your early days of music education. Oh, man, this is one of the big things with me. And since I've left the system, I have no problem ranking on it. Like, the amount of money I spent on that fucking college education where you're learning about these white-haired guys and you go in the general music classroom and the teacher's got those stupid posters about Mozart and Beethoven, like... I was in it. I didn't realize how negative it was at the time, but when I became a teacher and kind of started teaching, I realized that's a fucking, forgive my friends, that's a fucking virus in music education. And there's very few guys like me who has been able to have a classical background and kind of move into pop or that can kind of just open their mind a little bit that music education doesn't have to be this hyper-specific curriculum that's been, you know, in the works for decades is that there are so many more different types of music. And the fact that we're not learning about it in, you know, school where we're paying all this money and the fact that you have young, you know, multicultural towns and states in this country that, you know, you have 87%, you know, Latin American mm -hmm. population in some of these schools, they're not learning about Latin American music, which is like crazy. So that, that should be one of the advantages of this beautiful multicultural country we have is to be able to study all the great you know composers and great music and the great modern music and even jazz i mean we barely have jazz in the music education curriculum and that's mm -hmm. like you know that's old school i mean so music education is very far behind uh, i i put about five years as a public school music teacher and that's about as much as i could take i mean there's a lot of work that needs to be done i i will gladly, you know, try to help with a little bit of that work. But I, I think it's a real uphill battle to modernize music education. I think what happens is you just have individuals like myself or you, Garrett, or just there's a couple kids in every class that just kind of teaches themselves or kind of goes on YouTube or just kind of figures out how to become a musician. Um, I don't think it's ever going to come down to a teacher 
you know, having a better curriculum. You know, you're always going to have those superstars in the class that will always go for greatness. But we should um, take those dumbass Mozart posters down and Beethoven posters down because they're still up. Go to your kids' music class, people that are listening. They're going to have those posters. Maybe it's Tchaikovsky, but it's going to be an old white guy. And these are things that I really, really am passionate about. Um, even if, even though I'm out of music education, I think this is um, a very important issue, so I appreciate you bringing it up. When you were in music education, was it um, was it band? What was the, what was the specific subject and, and age oh, group? Oh, yeah, I was band guy. I did a little general music, too. Um, general music is where I saw more of the kind of curricular um, deficiencies. That's when, you know, people don't know what we're talking about. General music is where, you know, from elementary school, kindergarten through fifth grade, kids will have like one or two music classes a week. Um, and that's the one time these kids and their developmental changes get to experience music. And when I was teaching, I used to have these cool listening assignments and have them dancing to hip hop and doing jazz. And I put the Duke Ellington posters all over the place and you know, more modern musicians in my classroom was great. And then the principal or the district people come in and say, that's not kosher. I said, are you kidding me? You know, so there's even pushback to a lot of these, what I believe are positive things. So I've always been a rebel. rebel. I've always tried to be a little out of the box. But I've always tried to have research and logic and, and reasons behind, you know, the music I write or the decisions I make or the when I was teaching the educational decisions I made. Um, you know, so but I did get a lot of pushback because, you know, school districts tend to be, you know, research shows about 20 years in the past. So probably in about 2040, you know, they're going to be learning about, you know, probably Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, kind of like how they teach Wynton Marsalis. He's like at the end of the music history book. And mm -hmm. then you have Wynton Marsalis. He's a cool guy. In 2040, it's going to be Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. You know, these schools are just so behind. Um, especially with music education. And by that time, it's the, the educational value of Dre and Snoop Dogg will, will not be as important as if you taught you know, young kids about them today. Like, here's someone that's creating their own music. Now, let's open up our iPads and make our own music. Right. That's, what, that's music education, uh, not singing folk songs. And this is 100% <laughs> my opinion. Well, but but what is hip? And and we're going down a, a little rabbit hole here. But but what is oh, hip hop yeah. other than American folk music? If you really think about it, it's folk music that was born out of the parks in New York, and the tradition sort of sort of spread. So even on that side of the argument, I think there's some some validity to it because we teach you know the the folk songs that inspired um, you know Mozart's Turkish Rondo and all that sort of thing. But we aren't acknowledging you know, hip-hop, or even, I'll, I'll, I'll go all the way to Negro spirituals, you know, as folk music that's equally valid and should be treated equally valid in, in, uh, in curriculums. Well, I think it's kind of weird, you know, middle school chorus is this weird genre where they sing a lot of these African spirituals and stuff. You ever notice that? Like 7th and 8th grade choirs sing a lot of these spirituals and they, they sing a lot of gospel music. So that's something that's kind of nice. But you're definitely right about the framing of it being folk music. You know, I've never thought of it like that. That's actually pretty... Um, interesting, but some, something I've used in when I was teaching and framing is that idea of American music, is that jazz should be taught because it's American music, hip-hop should be taught because it's, it's part of the American experience. So whenever I've had to defend my educational decisions when I was teaching, I would kind of frame it as an American thing, but to frame it as a folk thing I think is even better. That's a very um, 
a keen way to frame it. I, I like that a lot. Several months ago, um, I had um, a woman on. Um, her name is Kwanis Floyd. She um, she grew up in New York, but got into music education down in D.C. And when she started to integrate um, go-go, you know, their local music into her music education classroom, that's when she got lots and lots of pushback. Um, and eventually that's the straw that broke the camel's back. She she left yep. music education and went um, into arts administration. I, I wonder, you know, in your five-year ten, uh, tenure, if there was a point in which, you know, a specific point in which you said, you know what, this is enough, I'm done. It, w- was there a straw that broke the camel's back for you? No, I don't want to be like that stereotypical ex-teacher. I think what happened with me is that my music composition career got too big and just as necessity, it needed to become a full-time thing. And that was always my plan, is that I was going to teach and kind of do the composition thing on the side and kind of as the scale tipped, as opposed to 50-50 income-wise, you know, once the composing ended up kind of taking over my life, I would eventually have to leave teaching, and that's what happened. But I still was disenfranchised by a lot of the stuff we're talking about, but I was still very um, thankful and just loved my experiences I got um, to have with my kids, you know, taking my kids to Philadelphia on the band competition trip, you know, kids that couldn't afford it, kind of putting them, you know, teaching them how to do fundraisers and things like that. You know, I still do email chains with some of the students when I taught high school with. I'm still close with many of them. A few of them have their own music careers. So those kind of blessings you really don't have in other careers. So I, I don't want to bash the career too much because there's a lot of special relationships you can make being a music teacher. But for me, I just had another career that ended up, you know, paying significantly more because music teachers just the pay is so low for what we do. So you for me, there were, you know, it was more of a positive reason to leave rather than a negative reason, if, if that sounds better. Yeah. You hear that so often of people leaving teaching, and in in particular when the teacher is responsible for a lot of things that happen outside of the classroom, you know, like a band director or a orchestral conductor might have to do. Um, I, you you talked about how far behind some of the um, some of the the uh, classes are with music. Define the classical music canon for you. What composers do you consider to be integral to the genre and uh, how they relate to music for TV and film, like what you do? Yeah, so I think this is where me as a a person, in my opinion, can almost be confusing and almost send mixed messages, is that I am really big on kind of modernism and pop music and music that could actually make money But I'm also very respectful and um, I revere the classical tradition. And, you know, obviously I'm a little biased because that's kind of how I studied uh, music. But I I think it does have a lot of inherent benefits. So I think a lot of the composers that I mentioned earlier that I criticize, like the Mozarts and the Beethoven, I think they have to stay in the curriculum. But just kind of take the posters out of the wall, you know, off the wall and kind of use them as they should in the sense of a timeline. It's just that our music education is behind that basically the last chapter of most of these books is, like I said, Wynton Marsalis Mm -hmm. in like, you know, maybe the the 80s. So I think a lot of these, you know, great names, you know, they happen to be white. You know, it is what it is, is, um, but we have to study them. Uh, So I think, you know, the great names like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, they have to be there. But um, there also are a lot of composers, you know, during that time that we could use to study, um, you know, you know, different 
style, like what was going on in Brazil during the time that Mozart was writing. Exactly. You know, yeah. What was going on in France? What was going on in the Middle East at the, at the time that Mozart, what was going on in America? Hello, <laughs> a big, big thing there. So sometimes we treat these classical music greats in a vacuum, like it was a separate part of history, but we forget there was like revolutions going on, you know, and there yeah. are other countries, you know, in the world. So we could use it as part of the overall curriculum, but we still have to study them because they're great composers and they write great music. And one of my favorite things to do um, once I started learning how to kind of become a beat maker in college and kind of learn modern stuff is I used to love putting Mozart tracks over hip hop beats because Mozart just has such a good groove and all his stuff in like A minor just had a certain kind of a hip hoppy feel. And I'm like, dang, good music is good music. And we have to learn about these guys, but we can't worship them. You know, even the term canon is kind of weird that they, they just have to be placed in the timeline of music history. You know, we could start all the way back at that, um, you know, ancient Egyptian zither recording on mm-hmm. YouTube, like the first piece of music, mm-hmm. and teach kids from there all the way until what happened this year. Like, when I stopped teaching, I think, um, like, John Legend was the big name, so I was teaching a lot of, like, John Legend. So teach the whole spectrum. That's all I'm saying there is that our, the canon is going to be in whatever curriculum you Google in your local public school, look up the music curriculum. They should list, you know, Stravinsky, Shostakovich, all these names. But it should be in what I kind of keep saying as a timeline. So that's all I really have to say about that. Is so, it's time to expand the timeline, and it's pretty easy. It's just for some reason there's a pushback. And and beyond expanding that Generally, timeline, I feel like I'm speaking in big generalities. I am speaking in general. There's a lot of gems and a lot of great districts around the country. It's a big country. I'm speaking in generalities, and I'm a very highly opinionated person. So forgive me if I'm speaking in big generalities. Well, no, because you know, it's the, my perspective. The, well. These these general opinions have manifested in the way we even think about music, especially the way we. Uh, frame classical music and 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 as I hear you talk about expanding the timeline and and opening up that circle, I wonder how you define a phrase like classical music or if that's even a phrase that uh, you think of, of is applicable today when it comes to teaching music and music education. It's such a strange term because when you take like your first music history class in college, like that when the teacher needs a cheesy icebreaker joke, he's like, yeah. Most of what we call classical music is actually romantic music. Mm. Dum tish, you know. Right, right. So we know that the term <laughs> classical music is bogus, but it just kind of stays. Um, I, I used it when I was a teacher because it just had a connotation. Like when I say classical music, I think powdered wig, I think Mozart, but I just think it's a bad term. Um, I, I I talk a lot about like on my Twitter. I talk about orchestral music a lot. I like to use that term because it. You could bridge um, time barriers and um, century barriers. I like to talk about orchestral music. I talk about chamber music. Um, I talk about groove a lot. Groove is a concept I talk a lot about. This is one of these kind of nebulous musical concepts that, you know, I I talk about melody a lot. So in terms of period, I don't really like that. I know there's a trend in the culture right now to put people into boomers and Gen X and Z and kind of categorize in classical. I don't think it's very productive. I don't think art history does that as much as music history. Mm. They have their minimalists and their romanticists, but that's more of a style boundary. It's not really a time boundary. So I think it's, you know, we get out of the time boundary because what I call the modernist or a postmodernist composer when I went to school was like those 50s guys, <laughs> you know, like, you know, sure. th- those were postmodern. But the postmodernists today are going to be, you know, like the composers of the 2010s. So, 
it's maybe just time to get away from terms that endear time frames and just talk about what it is. Orchestral music, large orchestral, small orchestral, um, yeah, things like that. Electronic music. And I think I've even electronic seen electronic music was was in the twenties. You know, we can, you know, these terms can bridge time time gaps, which I think is is pretty nice. You know, and music is music. I've said it once: good music is good music. And that's what people don't get about me. Like, how can you listen to hip hop and listen to Mozart? Good music is good music, regardless of time frame. Absolutely. And and I think I've even seen you uh, tweet something along the lines of how the sound of orchestral music can be the conduit to so much more. And um and and you know obviously there's orchestral music when we're talking about quote unquote classical music, but also those sounds exist in um in other genres. There's certainly um examples of that orchestral sound that I could point to um, in hip-hop and then obviously um, in, in the work you do now uh, as a composer. I want to I, I want to transition a little bit and um, and get the picture of your uh, transition from music education and more on focusing on composition. Was there one big gig that happened or or did you finally say look I can make my living doing this so uh, I'm just gonna do this? Well it's a little bit of both. Um... Because I do mostly, actually, actually exclusively TV music. So part of TV music is kind of generating royalties on the back end. So as you write music on more and more shows and people watch them, you know, it's kind of like a retirement plan. It keeps going up and going up. So as that account kind of kept going up through time, that was like pennies in the piggy bank. That was a big motivating factor. But, you know, I also just had one big gig that, you know, I got a little lucky with. So I was able to take that lump sum and kind of, you know, at least, you know, get out, you know, in a smart way. Because mm-hmm. I never wanted to just leave the day job and be kind of that starving musician or be irresponsible. Because exactly. I think creatively, I always created better music when I was financially secure. But when I, I know so many of my composer friends that just go right into freelancing and they're composing to eat, and it it puts you in a bad position, uh, in my opinion, creatively. Sometimes it can bring out great things when you're really desperate. But for me, I, I for me personally, I've always loved having that stability of having the day job and being able to compose on nights and weekends. So, you know, as, as, as the royalties grew, you know, that you're just doing the math, and then I got one big job. So I was able to kind of make the responsible decision to leave the career. And, you know, it's been basically ever since then. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm going on 10-plus years of it, you know, the straight freelance. And so, um, you know, for me, it's all t- it's been TV. I haven't been much of a film guy. I've just gotten really lucky kind of being close to New York, to be really involved in the film, I'm sorry, in the TV and the advertisement kind of sides of music. So, you know, I found my niche. Um, I really started getting myself in that niche in my last kind of year of conservatory as I saw all my old kind of performance major friends get jobs at like Panera Bread and all that stuff. So <laughs> I started to, to sail and like Eblins and stuff. So I'm saying like, well, maybe I should get into music that really pays and like, I used to watch Two and a Half Men, and Charlie Sheen always had, was like his big house in Malibu, and he would just had a piano. He was writing TV jingles, and I'm like, huh, John Williams writes film scores. Like, it seems like film and TV is this kind of mysterious part of the music industry where you can make some pretty damn good money, but it's not very respected. You know, your professors will look down on you, but hey, it's pretty good. So for me, if there is a crappy reality show on TV, I probably write the music for it, and I have no shame for it because that's the niche I found, man, and um, it's been a journey. So to answer the question kind of basically, for me, it was more of slow growth. 
I just, you know, made the responsible decision to leave. It wasn't really as much of a big job. But, um, but yeah, you know, I have a niche, and I've stuck with it. And, I'm, you know, if everything goes well, I will hopefully just stay, you know, right in this niche because that's, you know, what we really have to do as musicians is find what we're good at, find an audience, and just keep hammering at that. And, and, and you mentioned uh, crappy reality uh, TV. <laughs> I'll, I'll out myself and say that um, Love and Hip Hop is a show that I watch every single week. I never miss uh, an episode. And I did see that on the list of shows that you write music for. I wonder, do you feel like you have to be familiar with the show itself to write the music? Or, or, or what's your process for creating a sound that's appropriate for uh, the client you're working for? Yeah, that's a great question, and I probably shouldn't say crappy about shows that are using my music. <laughs> sure. When I say crappy, I just mean that um, my stereotypically crappy, you know, because actually these shows have a lot of money. Um, they produce the hell out of their projects. They pay a lot of people. They support a lot of musicians. So, you know, people watch them. So there's something about reality TV that us humans love. So it, it's kind of stereotypically crappy. I mean, is that it's not... You know, it's not like a Mel Gibson movie. That's just what I mean there. No, Love and Hip Hop's been going really well. I've been doing the music for that show really since the beginning. Um, and how it works with me and kind of how I started is in TV music is I have publishers. So I just have several publishers that, you know, basically find the jobs and make the connections. And I just get to be a composer. So I basically write music and send it to the publisher. You know, I could write music to picture or without picture. And the music publisher will just send it out to the different shows and the different editors, and the editors will actually edit to my music. So most of the stuff on Love and Hip Hop, what they do is they'll start with my beat or start with just a raw thing that I compose, and they kind of take the 10 hours of footage they have for that week, and they just kind of edit the drama around that. And that's what reality TV is. It's a lot of drama. So the music is actually very dramatic, very over-the-top. So, you know, that's mainly how I get my music to the shows as I go through my publisher. But in, you know, nowadays I've been, you know, doing a little more direct work. Sometimes I'm getting clips directly from the shows and I get to compose music to the clips. And that's pretty fun. That's when you could really craft something great. But just with reality TV, the schedules are so fast on a weekly basis. Um, I'm usually just sending music and uh, they use it and they edit it around and I just kind of rinse and repeat. Um, and, you know, just my publishers just happen to really be focused in this niche. So that's why, you know, I've, I have so many uh, reality shows that are using my music. There's really no specific genre. I've written music for, for Hunting Hitler, for Morgan Freeman, for Love and Hip Hop, for, you know, WWE Smackdown. You know, good music is good music. And you could put background music against any clip, whether it's The Undertaker, tombstoning someone or Kim Kardashian <laughs> arguing with her sisters or the bachelor choosing his you know final choice a little bit of background music will elevate that scene and that's that's what I do um, but most of the time they're editing to my music which is pretty pretty cool actually and um, it's one of the unique things about reality TV versus film where film will the composer will work to the clip Versus the other way, a lot of the editors I work with, they're working to my music, which is mm. pretty pretty cool. A, a music first approach, I like that. I, I yeah, just I, I just want to put it on the record that I was definitely a wrestling fan, but back in the WWF days, so I don't know <laughs> I don't know a whole bunch about WWE, but uh, you know, as you talk, I'm thinking about so many connections. You know, we talk about you know reality TV um, kind of gets the the bottom rung as far as what's respected <laughs> in 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 music. I mean in uh, in, in 
media and, and television. But, you know, that, that same sort of, um, for lack of a better word, snobbery definitely has a big role in in music. The way folks will, th- again, think of hip-hop as a lesser-than genre if, if, if they prefer classical. I wonder if, if you have thought about those connections, the way that we can broaden audiences um, the, uh, in the way that we do for TV and the way that we do for music, making those connections and, and, and helping people understand that all of these things are, are valid and vital. Yeah, and I was really lucky to have gone to the Hart School for Music where contemporary music was very, very emphasized. And we had a lot of these kind of more modern recitals where people started to kind of ditch the tuxedos and ditch the dress and started to do those little apartment concerts and kind of Philip Glass-esque kind of hyper-intellectual kind of music. Um, That has its place and kind of... But it's, it's it's just tough to innovate in any classical tradition that I think the innate nature of any quote-unquote there's that word again classical tradition part of that has to have some kind of pushback whether it's the medical field or you know the arts field or even literature you know the the status quo has to push back because that's what they have to do Um, but in classical music or the conservatory system it's way, it's almost in like the 1800s. I mean, we're not talking the 19. We're talking the 1800s. This kind of jury system and the one-on-one teacher every week and the big lectures and the same analysis. There can be some changes made, and you know, the seed for me really got planted during those years when I would go to these fancy recitals and go to these concerts, and it's. You know, God bless their souls, but just a lot of old people in the audience and stuff. And I'm spending all this money for school, and I'm like, is this really what it's all about? Mm-hmm. Is this, you know, how? And then I, on the weekends, all those classical majors, we're going to the Meek Mill concert. You know, we're going to down to New Haven and going to these big, you know, mosh pits and all these crazy things. I'm like, you know, what are we doing? Like, what kind of music? You know, why why are these things separate? Um, so. You know, I went to a contemporary school, um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't pop contemporary. It was like sure. classical contemporary. It was like William Bolcom, like kind of stuff. Um, so the next step for conservatories is, is I think every conservatory needs what I would call a pop music production major or some kind of a class. Or every year there's some kind of pop music aspect where they're recording um, or in studio, you know, I record these classical musicians in my studio on, on a monthly basis, and they don't know how to work with a click track. You know, it's not just the musical elements; is that there are career and um, business things that us that these classical students aren't learning to succeed in the real world. So, outside of music, there are certain skills that we need to propel our conservatories to. Um, to you know, help us kids make money because these professors don't have to worry about that stuff. They're, right. they're set. So for me, I did that for myself, and I got a lot of pushback, but I crafted a career that can be monetized and can be you know heavily monetized, and a, a career that you know you could actually do something with music. I would love to be you know like Itzhak Perlman and doing great recitals like that all the time, but you can't do that. You have to craft. Um, you know, the skill set for the 21st century. And, you know, conservatories are probably 80% there, but there's 20% that, you know, really sets you apart. I mean, a lot of these, you know, 
senior performance majors, they probably don't know how to hook up a microphone. Yep. <laughs> I, 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 I feel seen right now. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But there's the snobbery in that I don't need to do that. You know, there, there's a snobbery in the musical choice, but all, there's also a snobbery in, in the technology. You know, the, when, when remote recording sessions started to become a thing, who were the snobs? It was the studio executives. <laughs> but, you know, when home studios became a thing and laptop producers became a thing, there were snobs. You know, I'm probably going to be a snob in 20 years. You know, the snobbery is always going to exist. And they don't like to be bashed, but, you know, they, they do need to be bashed. It's part of moving art forward. I just wish, you know, it would move forward a little quicker um, because there's so many talented kids and so many, you know, talented classical musicians in school that just need to be directed a little bit more to some, just to develop some modern skills, and they might be able to support themselves a little bit better. Um, mm -hmm. That's just kind of my take on the overall you know, kind of system that we have. Um, it's a great system, but uh, it's 2020, man. <laughs> yeah, and I always have to sit and wonder, how did we get here with this snobbery? I mean, to act as if a lot of the, the things that people wrestle with in their day-to-day -day life doesn't exist in classical music, I think is foolish. I mean, the, the, you know, because a lot of the composers, like we're talking about that we revere, drank. They used drugs they were womanizers you know um all of the you know all of these negative things and yet when you go to a concert hall you're supposed to dress a certain way and act a certain way how do we get past this john this is a really great point and one of my favorite lessons actually the only time in my teaching career that i was able to stand there and lecture because you know you're really just not supposed to teach like that anymore mm. the only time i was ever able to do that is when i taught a lesson on mozart and I told my kids those things. And you should see the looks in their eyes. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. And I would talk to them about Bach getting in a sword fight with the bassoon player, of course. You know, this bassoon sword fight. Can you <laughs> That's funny to even think about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like when you give them these little factoids or, you know, all these pictures on the wall, you know, when you play them clips of, like, Nixon swearing and stuff, like, it humanizes. Yeah. It humanizes these figures we revere. So my kids used to love that lesson, and that was a big thing for me, is that how did we get to this hoity-toity place? Um, that And when you get to the kind of upper echelons of classical music, everyone's doing drugs, everyone's partying. Like, the professors are all lame in the conservatories, but they didn't make it. That's why they're <laughs> professors. They're all, but they're trying to make all their students into these lame lo classical losers. But when you actually hang out with these New York film musicians, they're <laughs> savages. I mean, everyone's doing drugs. They're all coked out. Everyone's smoking weed. I mean, come on. Everybody... Music is music. Hip-hop producers smoke weed. The best classical musicians smoke weed. You know, hip-hop producers drink. The best classical musicians drink. I mean, there's a certain amount of partying and a certain amount of rebellion that is within music. And to kind of package it and for this classical tradition to be so hoity-toity and you practice till your fingers bleed and, you know, your teacher hitting you with a pencil, that's not what it's about. You know, the the partying tradition has been around a lot longer than this, and I'm trying to bring it back to the partying tradition. Tell us how you actually feel about this issue, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, so. you're, you're bringing up, um, you know, you're, you're bringing up cannabis. And um, as this airs, we're, we're fresh off of uh, 420, 2020. And, um, and, you know, 
that that word weed, you know, talking about cannabis has just been so <laughs> taboo for so long. And it's always been, you know, uh, along with everything else I do um, in music, um, one of my life things is to normalize the use of cannabis. And I'll, I'll go ahead and say with open microphones, I smoke weed just about every day. I think it's important uh, for my mind, for my body, but even the recreational use of cannabis, in my opinion, is 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 just fine. Um, what role, if, if if you if you're comfortable with this question, what role does cannabis play in your life? Is it a is it a sort of muse for you? Is it something that you use strictly recreationally, or is it a mix of both? Yeah, no, I I do use cannabis, you know, recreationally. It's a big part of my life, and a big part of my creativity. You know, it's almost hard for me to write music without it, actually. Um, you know, and as I look through the jazz tradition, you know, I'm very actually empowered by that fact and, you know, very honored that I, I use this to help me um, with my music. And I think it's just part of the tradition. But, no, it's a big part of me. I just, I don't drink a lot. That's one thing with me is I'm really not a drinker. I probably drink, you know, maybe on, I can count the times I drink during the year on one hand. That's just something I'm not about. You know, I'm actually very health conscious. I try to eat very well and eat very whole foods. And for me, you know, cannabis just being a plant, a natural plant, um, you know, says it to me. And, and look at all the musicians, the old musicians that smoke weed. They're still around. They're still performing. It's the ones that did the coke. They're dead. Mm-hmm. The ones that did the opiates. They're dead. You know, the, you know, the ones that did the pills. They they're the ones that are hanging themselves. Even the, the over over drinking. They're still around, and they're doing just fine. And they do great. Yeah, the, the alcoholics. There. So for me, it's it's definitely my vice. But you know, I'm, I'm glad I found it. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that do it in conservatories as well but you know they they obviously have to hide it um i think in the jazz community and you know in my conservatory it was almost like jazz versus classical in the mm-hmm. jazz community i think it's just part of the culture um it's just it's like it's almost a requirement to go to the gig that <laughs> you have to have a little bit of that you know to kind of loosen up so for me it's a very important part of my life but i have gone you know there are negative aspects sometimes i've gone through parts of maybe having too much maybe being a little lazy a little demotivated you know you got to know when and when not, you know, take take a few days, you know, maybe don't get the good stuff all the time, you know, you know maybe, you know, take, you know, kind of slow it down a little bit. But uh, for me, I'm, I'm very health conscious. As a freelancer, you really have to watch what you eat and make sure you're not eating too much junk and, you know, cherish your body and, and make sure you're drinking water and all that. But uh, for me, the cannabis is just a plant. Um, I think it is, it can be a bit of a performance enhancer, enhancer at times. You know, there were times in conservatory that I would, you know, partake in cannabis before performances and that wasn't a good idea there were times I did it and it was a good idea but um for composing and creating music especially if you're you know like me kind of you know working alone in your own studio uh, for most of the day I think it does offer significant amount of it, um, it doesn't offer it kind of helps induce a state of creativity where you can you know ignore other things and just really focus on what you're doing because I don't want to make it seem like I'm hooked on a drug because I have been in, you know, parts of my life where I felt like I was smoking too much cannabis and I needed to take a break. So I don't want to come off that I'm kind of hooked on it. I don't think you can get hooked on it, but like any substance, you don't want to do it too much, but I've, I've gone through lethargic, you know, quote unquote, lazy times where I maybe smoke a little too much. So, you know, I do limit myself, but for me, it is uh, basically a daily part of my routine. I think it's um, the tradition of many of the great jazz musicians and uh, even though our great classical composers we study, um, a lot of them were just doing drugs and drinking and things like that. So it, it's a part of classical life. It's a part of my life, and I think it always will be. There's nothing to be afraid of. But, you know, the conservatory system just tries to breed this hyper-serious, austere 
kind of it's like the professors are trying to turn you into a professor and you know that's something i really disliked when i went to conservatory classes i would kind of be maybe a little stoned cracking some jokes in the back and no one would laugh i would make these kind of funny comments about you know whatever and no one would laugh. everyone's so kind of stiff you know because they're playing them i'm just like lighting up so that's why when i was in conservatory i hung out with the jazz folks i hung out with the you know, hip-hop producers in the audio department. I didn't really hang out with the conservatory types because there's a stiffness that's there. But once you get into the real classical world and, you know, people are doing little drugs, they're a little lighthearted, everyone's cracking jokes, everyone likes to party, that's what it's all about. You know, music is a big party, you know, so let's get a, (laughs) let's make music a party again. So what do you have to say to all of the band directors whose ears you have right now concerning the normalization of this culture and the integration of more contemporary topics in music education? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, and there's actually a specific thing I, um, you know, I've been working on with some other band director friends is that a lot of schools are using the same band method book that I used, like Accent on Achievement or Standard of Excellence. There has not been a new band book for decades. I mean, kids are still learning Hot Cross Buns, Frere Jaca, things like that. I think that there needs to be a brand new band book publication financed by some of the best rappers, the best pop musicians. We need a brand new band method for instrumental music education that has pop music, that has an app, a website with it that has cool music, a lot of cool colors, some uh, Pro Tools or Logic. We need a new band book. You know, kids are getting, you know, this cool instrument, and then they're stuck in this old-school music education structure in this old book that I think doesn't work. So if there's any band directors or orchestra directors, choir directors, music teachers listening, get good at arranging. Arrange your own music or go on musescore.com and download some pop arrangements. Give your kids pop music. You know, don't stick to the old books and the old ways. You know, use modern music to reach your kids. It's what works so well, and you never know whose live you're going to change, and you never know who's going to be the next Beyonce. You really never know who's going to be the next Scott Storch or something like that. So, you know, music education, but don't push the limits too much because, you know, you might lose your job. You know, this is the problem. Um, and another important thing for music teachers is never give up your performing or your your main instrument is don't just become a teacher. Make sure you're primarily a musician first because what your public school is going to do is they're going to try to turn you into a teacher and you have to realize you're a musician. Don't let them turn you into the robots like the science teacher or the math teacher. Don't let them, you know, put up your little word wall and put up your objectives like they want you to do, but don't turn into a boring teacher because these these kids have boring teachers all day. You know, be a musician. Be the cool teacher. Be the, the teacher that they're excited to see and when you're still playing your own instrument and still doing gigs on the weekend or still composing I think that helps a lot so just be an active music teacher be a modern music teacher and band directors let's get together send me an email and let's get some funding and write a new band method that we could send to every inner city in America and have kids passionate about practicing music um, imagine if these kids were just practicing their instrument for hours a day because they're hooked on a cool book that teaches them little Dr. Dre jingles and, you know, little hip-hop songs and little bits of jazz history. Um, you know, that would be really, really great if we can finally get a new kind of urban band book, an urban orchestra book, and, you know, really get some good publishers to publish this thing. So, you know, I would love to participate in that as a composer. I've been talking uh, with my buddy Sloan Williams out in Hartford 
um, you know, at the Jackie McLean um, school out there about, you know, working on kind of a couple basic drafts and a couple songs and traditional band books that we think are time to be removed, like Frere Jaca and, you know, some of these kind of, you know, hot cross buns, Mary Had a Little Lamb. You know, we can teach our kids their first song, um, you know, it can be um, you know, something a little bit better than that. You, you know, j- just take whatever the cool pop song of the day is, and that's probably a three-note melody. So just have your kids learn that, and then that will show them that, hey, you can make a lot of money doing this one day. You could have a lot of fun. You could impress your friends. But, you know, it, it, your students are not going to impress anyone by playing Frere Jacques on their saxophone. So we're just rethinking music education specifically. Just don't be afraid to be out of the box because those are the folks that will uh, get the jobs. So uh, thanks again for having me, guys. Check out johndelvento.com. It's like my home base. Um, I lost a lot of weight since that picture, so I'm going to take a new picture soon and kind of update <laughs> the website. But you could listen to a little bit of my music, some of my projects. Um, yeah. John Del Vento here on Triloquy. Some really um, surprising and not so surprising answers from John today. John was getting in his bag for a minute when he started talking about these college professors and how they're trying to uh, crank out these old nerds like them. (laughs) It's nice to hear uh, folks uh, speaking comfortably, but, you know, something I wanted to underscore um, that that he talked about was how speaking freely um, can can be a risk. You know, uh, you can risk your job. You can you can risk your um, reputation. And the fact that he's found this bit of freedom and is able um, to speak to these issues um, is really phenomenal from my perspective. I, I, I love the idea of going to music school and creating a career for yourself that is a little um, atypical. So I, I hope more folks will um you know, begin to take that to heart so that as a society, we're not just going to music school to be the next orchestral player, but to be the next member of society in whichever mm-hmm. way that we can. Right. Not necessarily the next conductor or the next first chair of whatever orchestra. Certainly not the next conductor. Well, not in your <laughs> case, anyway. <laughs> so um, so next time on Triloquy, um, I'm speaking with uh, Amare Ford. So he lives down in Oklahoma. He um, has a, a music camp uh, that's coming up that he's going to promo a little bit. We're going to talk about his upbringing, um, how he came out of music school without options and created this for himself and the way he uses um, his own creation as a conduit for um, for music education um, to come, for, for many years to come. So be sure to uh, catch that next time on Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>